Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having inspiring conversations with passionate product people. If that sounds like the sort of thing you can get behind, why not come and join me and some of the finest product thought leaders and practitioners in the world on onenightinproduct.com, where you can check out my back catalogue, sign up to the newsletter, subscribe on your favourite podcast app or follow the podcast on social media, and guarantee you never miss another episode again. On tonight's episode, we talk about doing the splits. No, no, not like a gymnast, but split testing, and making sure that we get the best information out of our tests. What makes a good split test? Can everybody do them? And is it really possible to make an extra gazillion dollars just by making your buy now button a different shade of blue? For answers to all of these questions and much, much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Andres Glusman. Andres is a seasoned growth strategist and pioneer in experimentation and split testing turned company founder and CEO. Andres started out as a ballpark vendor at the iconic Wrigley Field where he had a front row seat to the wisdom of crowds and presumably tried out a lot of different outfits and signpost colours to sell as many two-foot hot dogs as possible. <laughs> but, he, but he couldn't stay behind the counter forever and moved on to a career notably including nearly 15 years at Meetup where he helped grow the company and launch it into the atmosphere, an eventual $200 million acquisition by WeWork. And I bet they all lived happily ever after after that. Andres is now the CEO of Do What Works, a groundbreaking new platform that has analysed over 15,000 split tests and can hopefully finally let us know what colour to make all of our submit buttons. Hi Andres, how are you tonight? I am doing great. What a wonderful intro. Thank you very much. I do have to ask though, was it hot dogs that you were selling at Wrigley Field or have I uh, misrepresented your endeavours? Yes. At Wrigley Field, my item of choice were the lightweight items so you could fly around because I was actually lugging all that stuff on my back. So hang on a minute. This, was, this, was this unauthorized vending? Oh, no, no, no. I was, I was an official vendor. I was part of the Vendors Union of Chicago and it was amazing. But no, I it was the kind of vendor that you walk around the ballpark with the items yelling and, and, and throwing <laughs> stuff. And so when you sold Coca-Cola or when you sold hot dogs, you actually have to carry around like a five-ton oven to like actually lug and deliver those hot dogs. So you don't want to do that. So I picked peanuts, <laughs> ice cream, whatever was lightweight and easy to throw. Well, it sounds like it was character building anyway. So that's the most important thing. But down to business, you are the chief executive officer at Do What Works. And we've talked about just now the 15,000 split tests and counting, but specifically what problem are you solving for your customers with that analysis? And for that matter, what types of customers are you solving it for? Absolutely. So Do What Works is a company that helps growth and product leaders do what works, right? So <laughs> the, uh, the problem that we're solving is the problem that I used to feel, which is essentially that when it comes to driving growth, if you can improve the conversion rates on your website or on your ads, there is profoundly great things that can happen. But it turns out that improving conversion rate is super hard to do. And when, <laughs> when people try and do it, they basically are wrong at least 80% of the time, even when they're running experiments. So the, the best people in the world run experiments to try and figure out what actually works and what doesn't. And even those people who have all this learning are generally not moving the needle four times out of five. And what Do What Works is solving is essentially giving them the ability to learn from everyone else so that they can tip the odds in their favor. Yeah. I mean, those odds don't sound great. And we're going to come back <laughs> to those odds in a minute. But just in case anyone hasn't done these before, and you've kind of touched on it on a high level, but just in case someone hasn't done them or calls them something else entirely, how are you specifically defining a split test? Like what makes a split test for you? 
Yeah. So there's lots of different descriptions of split tests. Some people call them A-B tests. Some people call them split tests. Some people call them multivariate tests. Essentially, what it refers to is systematically varying a user experience for different groups of users and then comparing the end result to see how did the experience result in a specific kind of activity. Did you see more people signing up when you had certain activity A, when when you presented certain language in the headlines, or did more people sign up when you had B, which is why it's called A-B testing, right? <laughs> Although we certainly see people running tests, you know, as many as seven, eight, nine-way split tests when they really want to get crazy. Yeah. I mean, would you say there's a maximum that they should go for? Or does that really just depend on lots of factors and not just the number? The number one thing that it depends on is how much traffic volume you get. So the problem with running lots and lots and lots of variants, which is really fun to do, very tempting, because in theory, you're going to learn lots and lots of things, <laughs> is that it takes a long time to learn. So when you are running split tests, it can take, depending on the size of the company, but we work with six of the top streaming brands, for example. And even those companies that are really pretty darn big are constrained. And it takes them about a month to get enough traffic to run a specific experiment and get a statistically significant result. So if you're running three variants, four variants, eight variants, it can take eight times as long to get the result. <laughs> and uh, that's not necessarily what you want. So you really have to balance speed with precision in the quest to actually figure out what to learn, not just the fact that you can learn everything. You need to figure out, be very strategic about what you want to learn and how. Uh, Fair enough. And I can certainly think of a few CEOs and company founders out there that would in no way want to wait that long. So I guess, you know, short and sweet, right? But what made you start or decide to start a company up that does this anyway? I mean, you worked at Meetup for quite a long time. Yeah, I think nearly 15 years That's right. through the WeWork acquisition. And I guess maybe through the divestment. I wasn't sure if the dates matched up, but ultimately you were there for a while and I'm sure you were doing a lot of growth there. I mean, I spoke to our mutual friend, Gif Constable on the podcast a couple of years oh. back. Yeah, I love Gif. He's a great He's guy. He's a wonderful, wonderful friend of mine. Yeah, I love Gif. Yeah, no, Gif's, Gif's brilliant. I think he just lives up the road from you as well. So hopefully you can go and have a coffee and say hello for me. But ultimately he spoke about, when I interviewed him, he spoke a lot about the for example, when WeWork took over and there was obviously a much higher emphasis on growth and much more aggressive targets, or certainly that's what I remember from that conversation. So it feels like there was a lot of growth work going on there, maybe before that, but certainly after that. So was that really where you kind of got the bug for all of this stuff? Or did you kind of get this experimentation and split testing bug from somewhere else? The bug, it turns out, I caught at the late 90s when I first got involved with the online commercial internet in the late 1990s in the form oh, of, the good um, old days. running ads on different portals back in the day, which I can get into. And, and if you want to kind of <laughs> get your, get your uh, you know, allow me to prove how much gray hair I actually have. <laughs> but the bug for running experiments online and on websites really was something I caught at Meetup. So, you know, I, I helped launch Meetup and made their first $14 of revenue. I had a variety of different roles, including product and growth over the years. And we became early pioneers in the lean startup movement because we just started experimenting with experiments early on. And we were extraordinarily lucky that the very first few experiments that we ran generated positive results. And that motivated us to want to keep going. <laughs> <laughs> and nothing is more addictive than winning. And so when, we, when you win, you want to do more of it. And I ran lots and lots of experiments. Our company started growing much, much faster the more experiments I ran. And so I really fell in love with kind of the potential of what happens when you can run a lot of experiments. You certainly can grow a lot faster spending the exact same amount of money or less. Yep. The problem that I learned is that there's a lot of problems that occur with experimentation that nobody talks about. And you don't see people getting up on stage and celebrating 
the, the eight <laughs> times out of 10 that they did not move the needle. You get them, you get them on stage bragging about the, the, the few times that it did work. And so the, the problem that I set about solving was really my own personal frustration, which is when I was at Meetup, I doubled the size of my team. I doubled the number of experiments I could run. I grew it, doubled it again. We suddenly could run more experiments. But at a certain point, you sort of max out the number of tests you can run. Yep. And the maxing it out was not driven necessarily by my team size. It was really driven by how much traffic you have. And I also was sort of shocked to discover like, man, there's so many more things I want to learn than I have the time to test. And so many of the things that you are testing don't actually work. And as a result, that's sort of the, the bug that I caught. Now, during that time, I'd hang out with my, my buddies. Actually, it's so funny because Gif Constable and I and a mutual friend of ours, Kareem, we all were the co-organizers of the Lean Startup Meetup of New York City because we were all figuring this out at the same time. Yep. And these became three of my best friends. And we'd meet up with those two guys. And then we'd also go hang out with the product leaders at Shutterstock and Etsy and various other companies in the New York area that were all really growing at the same time. We would swap notes. And we were able to learn so much from each other and figuring out what worked and didn't work. And we'd literally come home from those sessions and the next day, start executing and be like, okay, this is the, what, what the Shutterstock guys did. And this is what the people over at Etsy did. Let's, let's sort of borrow these things. And so for me, part of the motivation when I started Do What Works was sort of saying like, well, how do I recreate that feeling? How do I create the ability to learn from everyone at scale without everyone needing to be in the same room, without people needing to contribute their thoughts around it? And so... It very much was on my mind there because I was absolutely such great, you know, had such a great experience collaborating with people and wanted to recreate that. And then when we actually launched it, it really started as a technology. We had a cool idea for this technology. And we, my co founder and I were both playing around with ideas. We had both left Meetup a little while earlier. We both left pre divestiture. So we, Meetup was acquired by WeWork. And uh, that afforded me some time to go play with different ideas. And my co-founder had also left Meetup at the same time. He was an engineering a leader that I had worked with for over a decade. And we had a great relationship. And he and I would get together regularly and play with ideas and toys. And we built this as a toy. <laughs> and then we showed it to friends. And they said they'd be willing to pay for it. And we sent them a Stripe link and said, prove it. <laughs> and they paid. Oh, there so, you go. so they did pay for it. And uh, that gave us enough confidence to go ahead and build this thing. And so we built the technology and then we built the user experience that allows them to see the experiments. And then we've just had the great fortune of working with all these amazing clients to refine what we've been working on with them and in collaboration with them over the last several years to now have experiment discovered over 15,000 experiments. I think we actually just crossed the 16,000 mark this week. Wow. Which is great. I'm very happy about that. I'll take my numbers. <laughs> Indeed. You can sort of see our trajectory based on, uh, on, on how quickly we're growing there. And that then gives us the ability to see patterns around what actually works and what doesn't work in order to be able to kind of tip those odds in your favor. But just to clarify, are you detecting people's split tests that they haven't asked you to detect? So for example, you can point a bunch of web crawlers at a bunch of different people's websites and then automatically categorize stuff based on observed behavior? Or are you categorizing the tests that people that are working with you have asked you to categorize? We are categorizing experiments based on what we're seeing through the technology. So the tests that we've seen have been from over 1,600 different companies is what we're looking at on a daily basis. We're looking at over a million data points on any given day, and we're analyzing them using our patented technology in a way that allows us to understand when the experiments are being run, and then ultimately what's winning and losing. Yep. And then we've made it, you know, we've really worked super hard to make the user experience, uh, our, our customers able to then tap in and be like, oh, I wonder, I'm thinking about doing an experiment with social proof. 
do these kinds of social proof work or is this just something that everyone does because everyone thinks they should? You know, <laughs> <laughs> what are the different approaches that people might take in my industry? And so they're able to search by specific kinds of companies and by specific kinds of experiments to be able to see the kinds of things that actually do or don't move the needle. I do have to ask though that presuming that some people aren't asking you to check their own tests and you're kind of just crawling them, don't some people kind of object to you tracking their split tests or do they not really care? It's funny because when we first started this thing, the, uh, we always got two questions. The, the first question was, is this legal? <laughs> <laughs> Are you allowed to do this? And, and we, uh, we, we were very careful early on to make sure that, yes, it is. We don't look good in orange. So we paid back when we were really, really just getting started. We had these tiny little customers, you know, just, just really good signal. We paid a lot of money to lawyers to make us make sure that we were doing everything in, in a legit way that was completely above board. Yep. The second question we get, is can I pay you to not be in your database? <laughs> and uh, we said, no, that is not something we want to do. We don't want to be in the shakedown business. That didn't feel very good to us. So yeah. we want to be in the business of helping people learn from everyone. And so the reality is that even the biggest of companies that we're tracking that happen to be also our customers, they learn much more from everyone else than they're actually contributing in to the system. Although, of course, you know, the only way that an experiment gets into the system is by our engine detecting it. And working through its process. So there's nothing that we might know from a friend of ours or from anyone that influences what goes in. It's entirely driven by what the engine is seeing. Well, sounds exciting. Maybe I'll sign up. But are there any top insights that you've come up with? Like you just talked about analyzing across all these different companies, all the thousands and thousands of tests that you're doing. I'm sure you're doing some analysis of your own as well, some sort of meta-analysis so that you can get almost like a state of the nation of people's tests across your entire database. So I guess the question is, are there any certain specific design or interaction patterns or things that people are doing on their websites on a kind of aggregate level that reliably give good results? And maybe we should just stop fighting, trying to change how people do those things, and they should just do that thing every single time. That's 100% what we're all about. And that's kind of the core question. So what's interesting about our service is that we launched it and we were able to deliver insights to people. They said, well, data. And they're like, that's really, really cool. I'm amazed to be able to see this one experiment from a competitor. And then they said, well, I want to see how does, how does that pattern hold across multiple people like this? And so they started doing that themselves. And they said to us, well, hey, can you just give us recommendations and give us an analysis on our specific pages? And so the answers are very much dependent on the kind of company that we're working with the kind of sector that they're in and the kind of page that they are looking at. I mean, what's really fascinating though is you can see certain trends emerge and then you start looking at the experiments that are related to that trend. So some people start actually testing it. So a year ago, there was a Super Bowl ad and the ad was by Coinbase and they had just a, a QR code floating around the screen. Very famous. Yep. And then everyone said, oh, we got to start using QR codes in our advertising, <laughs> right? We got to use QR codes to try and drive, uh, drive results in and get people to sign up. And so what we started seeing soon thereafter is a lot of experiments on heroes on their signed up pages, right? Trying to encourage people to use a QR code to download the app. In theory, that should really speed up the process of being able to get to the app store. One of the classic problems that everyone who's ever had a mobile app is trying to bridge the gap between a computer and a, and a phone. So we saw one company test, we saw two companies test, we saw three companies test, and it's almost like universally true that every single time we saw somebody test it in this specific way, in the hero, to the logged out user, it did not win. It lost and lost and lost. And so those are the kinds of patterns you can see over and over and over again on the kind of new front, which is really cool because so many trends and so many patterns and really conventional wisdoms that you see people embrace. 
they're embracing it for all the wrong reasons. Like that ad was a success because there was nothing else like it, not because it was a QR code. <laughs> and you see people do this over and over and over again on all these different emerging trends. And the reality is most things that people take as a given are not really backed by data. They just are doing it because the guy or girl before them started doing it. And you see that over and over and over again. Well, I mean, losing is obviously very on brand for crypto these days. <laughs> but I do think it's interesting, this whole idea that people, they go down the obvious path because of the cognitive biases that make that sound like a good idea and the kind of well-known immunity to statistics or the inability to grasp or understand statistics that pretty much everyone has somewhere. They kind of have to train themselves to get good at that. So QR codes aside, are there any other things like key insights where we'd sit there and say, for example, always make your purchase button blue or something like that? Or is it a little bit more nuanced than that? Because that's the classic example, right? It's extremely classic. The very interesting thing is one is it's, it's very nuanced in terms of what to do. What's fascinating though, on the since you brought up button color, is it's sort of the classic thing that you get your hands on a testing tool. And <laughs> and you're like, all right, what can we what can we change? And you're like, let's change button color. Because that's actually the easiest thing to change. Like, there couldn't be anything easier to change than button color <laughs> on these tools. Oh, I've certainly worked with some developers that would argue if you in my time, but you know, let's just assume those are outliers. Yeah. And so if you're running a test, you're like, all right, let's run it on button color. What we see is that everyone tests red versus blue, green versus yellow, blah versus blah, right? It doesn't, it doesn't really matter what. The outcome that we see is that almost it's universally the case that that's not a factor that matters. The words matter. The size matters. The shape matters. The number of CTAs matter. The approaches that you're taking matter. The headline around it, the calls to action, whether it's sentences or bullet points, all those things matter, but, and they're, and they're nuanced to the specific kind of company and the specific kind of challenge you're working on. For sure. But sadly, the number one most popular thing that everyone experiments with is a bit of a dud, which is actually super sad because what could be more soul-crushing than having your first experiment at the gate be this massive loser over and over and over again? Is you're like, oh, did we just make a terrible investment when we invested in whatever technology (laughs) we were using to make it easy to run tests? Yeah, good luck getting authorization to make the next test as well then after that, right? (laughs) Exactly. But that's an interesting point, though, right? Because there are some companies out there that experiment quite a lot. You've talked about some of the stuff you were doing back in the day. And of course, there's gonna be a bunch of people that you're detecting and working with now that are also doing the same. But there are also a bunch of companies, probably quite a lot of companies that don't really do very much testing at all. And I wondered if you'd spoken to people out there when you're out and about talking about this stuff that maybe are in that situation where they're not getting to do too much of this stuff. And if you're able to call out some of the main barriers or blockers to companies doing more experimentation to help drive some of the growth and the kind of right strategic areas to go in that you talked about earlier. When it comes to running experiments, there's some extremely good reasons to not run experiments. And there's some really bad reasons to not run experiments. <laughs> the This sounds like an A-B test. It is a bit of an A-B test. And, and I've lived through all of them. And, and what <laughs> often happens is that there's a pendulum. And so when you're very, very, very small and you don't have very much traffic on any given page, running an A-B test will take you three months, five months, 10 months to get a result if you have a very limited amount of traffic. Yep. And so as much as you want to learn, as awesome as it would be to learn that this thing could drive a 15% lift, do you really want to do the work to wait 10 months to get the result? So traffic is one of the biggest drivers of getting 
of running experiments or not. Similarly, there's other constraints that people feel like in regulated industries, you got to get your lawyers involved, you got to get your regulators, you got there's so many people that have to say yes to getting a test out the door. And so there's a lot of constraints that slow you down. That being said, in those industries, small improvements can make a pretty big difference in the number of people signing up for your credit card. For example, that's kind of a huge deal. The number of people signing up for your direct to consumer health product is a pretty big deal. So it's just more constraints. And so that slows it down. But the impact there is pretty profound. So they have headwinds, but they're able to do them, but it's just slower and harder. Yep. The case that you often hear, which I think is sort of the wrong approach, is I don't want to run an experiment when you have the right amount of traffic, is I don't want to run an experiment because it's going to be, it's going to slow us down. We're going to know if it worked or didn't work after we launch because we're going to just see a big lift or we're not. And if it's not a big lift, then we're going to, we'll know. But what ends up happening is that the thing gets launched maybe a little bit faster because it's not run as a split test. And then immediately everyone hovers around a computer, usually around an analyst computer. And they say, <laughs> did it work? And then the analyst says, I have no idea if it worked or not. And so this poor analyst now goes and runs around for, for months, feeling executives breathing down their neck, trying to figure out whether or not this pre-post analysis actually made a difference in what way and trying to unpack it. And it's so hard to decipher that ultimately this gain that you thought you were getting in terms of being able to launch something faster if you sort of measure the right thing, which is the time it took you to know if it worked. So that from idea to actually knowing if it worked, if you measure that time, it's probably the same amount of time or slower, but your precision and your ability to learn just, got, just fell through the floor. So the argument that says, oh, well, we can launch a lot faster. We don't have time for this stuff. When you have the traffic is really not a very good argument at all. Now, I can tell you... like. I can argue against myself and I can tell you all the times when I've learned the uh, you should, in fact, not be running experiments. And, and there is such a thing as running too many experiments. Yeah. And I've been there too. So, you know, when we were really running, starting to run more and more experiments at Meetup and we were seeing win after win after win and it's really feeling good. Suddenly we're like, oh, let's learn everything. Let's not test, <laughs> let anything out the door. And we need to make sure that every experiment would make my biology teacher proud from high school. <laughs> and so we basically then, you know, only changed one small thing and then another small thing and then another small thing and another small thing. So did we learn with a lot of precision? Yes. Was it worth the trade-off of like operating on smaller and smaller increments? No. And so at a certain point, what happens when people fall in love with experimentation is that they start running too much. And there's a, a sort of a Goldilocks is sort of the, uh, the the parable there, right? You want sort of you want to be running at the right aperture. You want to run on things that are going to make a difference. You want to run so you actually know you made a difference. You want to assemble building blocks together of things that work so that you can move the needle and make bigger swings, but you don't want to overdo it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this reminds me of some of the discussions that you have with people about product discovery in general, like qualitative discovery as well, where people get into this kind of, we've got to speak to the next user. We've got to speak to the next user. So it's just like that on an industrial scale, I guess. So it's just, I guess it's just this interesting tendency and i've seen this and spoken to other people about this before around this idea that product teams are where good ideas go to die because they have to spend so much time kind of going in these loops to learn everything that they can that they forget to actually ever ship anything so i can imagine that does frustrate certain types of people that's right and what you're really looking at there is people wanting to not be wrong <laughs> Yeah. More than you want people wanting to make a difference. I mean, obviously, everyone's heart's in the right place. And everyone who's working on something generally finds themselves in product because it's really, it's really cool. You get to affect behavior. 
Yeah. When people start getting scared of being wrong, when people start being scared of like, oh, it's not, it's not super scientific to the point where, you know, um, it, it can pass the, the, the 99.9% confidence level. Well, at, at that point, you're being way too cautious and you're letting science replace judgment. That's, that's such a bad way of saying it. You're letting, uh, you're, you're letting a desire, you're letting a desire for experimentation replace judgment and experimentations inform your judgments. They make you smarter. They make you better at your job. They make you more able to hone in on what works. But even the most precise experiments, even, uh, let's just go with like a 95% confidence interval. You know, by definition, there's a margin of error in a 95% confidence interval test and you have to live with error and error is just a part of life. Yeah. Well, don't tell some of the people I've worked with, but let's talk. <laughs> But let's talk a bit more about that risk then. And you said before this call and actually during this call as well that 80 to 90%, I think, of split tests don't beat control, mm -hmm. i.e. they don't perform any better than the original version that you were trying to improve. And you said then that you would never take those odds at a casino, which I agree with. I would not play that game. But how can we stack the deck in our favor and attempt to run more successful tests in general? Yeah, those are impossible odds that you would never take at a casino. <laughs> Not even in Vegas. Not even in Vegas. You know, those are the odds that venture capitalists take. And why do they take them? Because they're sort of banking on the winners to more than make up for the losers, one, right? Yep. And two is you just have to be very smart about screening what you're going to do or not do in order to maximize the odds that you get that two out of 10, the three out of 10, the five out of 10 win rate. Because those impacts can be very, very large when you actually start stacking them up and they do compound on a singular flow. So, it's hard, but worthwhile is actually the number one thing to note. The, the second thing to note is just to say, okay, well, how do you get your hands on signal before you figure out what you're going to test? Yeah. How do you get your hands on signal when you're generating the ideas? How do you get your hands on signal when you're prioritizing? How do you get your hands on signal when you're thinking through all the different assumptions on how you're executing it and the different ways in which all the language comes together and the layout and the design and the elements and whether you include a how it works section or not? The more you can get signal, the better. Now, of course, I should say that everyone should use Do What Works, get that signal, and that would be awesome. And that would be the, <laughs> the best signal. The best signals always come from Do What Works. That would be awesome if I could say that. I actually probably do believe that, but it's not the only place that you can get signal. You can get signal from teaming up with other product leaders like I used to do. You can get signal by running those qualitative experiments and just watching people use stuff, getting qualitative feedback as a way of triangulating in. Oh, that's interesting. I had a conversation with, I showed them. This new thing we're thinking about. I showed them a rough mock-up of this thing we're thinking about. I, have, I had them try and use it in this weird way. And it was a signal to me. And they, they actually not only were willing to pay for it, they gave me their credit card number. Okay, that's a pretty good signal that there's a demand <laughs> for this thing, right? There's ways of getting signal all across the board. And you just have to be clever about understanding whether or not there's more reason to do it than to not do it. And if there is, well, then you're tipping the odds in your favor. And that's kind of the, the good news about terrible odds is that they're not that hard to beat. <laughs> if you, if you can, uh, no, if you can, if you can really figure out a way of getting that incremental insight, almost like Moneyball, uh, famously from the Michael Lewis book around. Uh, it gets on base. Yeah. Back to the Wrigley Field, right? Exactly. It gets on base. It's just funny because I, I grew up playing soccer. I didn't play baseball at all, but <laughs> I do love that movie and I love the, the, what it's all about, which is sort of around using a very simple heuristic, a simple way and a few ideas with data up front to be able to sort of outdo your competitors because you've got the information advantage. And so that's really what it's kind of all about is how do you get your hands on data before running the experiment in order to have that edge on everyone else? Don't run too many at the same time. 
But I was speaking to a friend recently, in fact, today about split testing, and she was wondering out loud whether they could ever really scale up properly. She said that she's run a bunch of A-B tests in her career, and even if she considers ones from the same product, that if she'd have kind of taken the winner from all of them, she'd be about 40,000% up already because of the different kind of signals that she's got back from those tests. And she also opined that maybe there's more of a limiting factor of saying, well, we're using these tests to make sure that we don't make bad decisions rather than that we're making like knockout new good decisions. Do you think that that's a risk of running too many tests that you end up kind of optimizing for just not making things worse? Or do you think there's always a potential golden egg out there somewhere that you can win and there's a way to operationalize these tests in a way that can unearth those in due course? Doing no harm is, is a good starting point. So, so that's not a bad spot. I, I don't think that's why we're all in this business, though. I don't think that's why people get into product or get into driving growth or make products and, or, or run companies. The, the goal is to try and affect people and to try and change a behavior for the better. The experiment in and of itself, well, first of all, is it, not a bad thing. Like, like getting a 40,000 or whatever she said, 4,000%, 40,000% lift, I think a lot of people would sign up for that in a heartbeat. So that's not bad at all just in terms of conversion rates. The essence of it, though, is what do you learn about humans? Every single experiment gives you an insight. And you know the joke around experience is experience is what you get when you don't get what you want. And uh, so all those <laughs> losing experiments that you see people run that were doing harm or they're avoiding doing harm, at least they're learning. But the ones where you're actually doing right, it gives you the most profound signal about what people are responding to. What, what's the attention there? What, what is it that ways in which people behave? And so if you can be strategic about harvesting your insights so that you're not just getting a numeric win, but you're getting a transferable insight, then you've just like, oh, I hate using baseball analogies, but you've just hit a home run, right? You've just, you've just like <laughs> grand slam if you want to go all the way there, right? So you, uh, you, you basically have just compounded the, the benefits that you're receiving across the board. And it's not that the methodology is good or bad. It's the misapp. It's it's the appropriate application because when it's applied properly, then you're overcoming the natural human shortfall that is to believe that your assumptions are correct and you're figuring out which ones are right and wrong faster. Which ultimately is the difference between a kind of an okay career and just an, a gangbusters career, right? Things feeling like they're like come we have wind at your back or wind at your front, and that, that's really the big difference is how well you are able to learn and how quickly you're able to incorporate the lessons into the next thing you do. I think there's always an argument that you can always do one more thing to check it out, as long as you're not, as we talked about earlier, doing continuing to get into a loop of that. It's like, there's always something new to learn, but I guess you've just got to work out when the tipping point is. I mean, it's maybe going back to the casino, rather than uh, baseball for, for a second, like when mm -hmm. to hit and when to stick, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So like, well, yeah, when can you go in with confidence? Well, and there are diminishing returns. At a certain point, you need to move on, right? You need to think about a different component. There's only so much juice you're going to squeeze out of out of the lemon. Or, or <laughs> that's, that sounds kind of negative. There's only so much juice you're going to squeeze out of whatever fruit you've got going on there. And so you have to sort of know when there's diminishing returns and then move on to the next thing. But speaking about juiceless lemons, I mean, we talked a bit about the fact that you need to have a certain base size that you can go out to, a certain number of users that you can go and experiment on or experiment with. When I think of split testing, I'm thinking of big mass market B2C apps with billions of users. And yeah, we talked already about the Google 50 Shades of Blue and all the money they apparently made out of that. That all sounds great if maybe slightly 
inaccurate for every use case, but I'm a B2B guy and I've worked on some pretty niche products in my time with a handful of users, you know, in the hundreds rather than the thousands or the millions or the billions. They all paid a lot for the privilege, but there certainly wasn't enough people there to start doing what it didn't feel like there was enough people there to do any kind of test on. So is there any hope for us B2B types and will we ever get to run a split test? It's interesting that you said some of our most active customers are actually in B2B, not B2C. Right. And, and the reason for that is because there is now consumer-like expectations with business-level traffic. Yep. So they have the real, real challenge of delivering a beautiful experience that feels like it's as polished as using Netflix, but they have just a fraction of the traffic. And they have even less traffic on a super important page, like a pricing page. Even fewer people get there. And so what are you going to do? The opportunity to learn is still there. And we see it. And we see a lot of experiments in B2B. So it's actually one of the areas that we uh, we really love looking at. It's really fun to look at. And the challenges are kind of the, the need for data up front becomes that much more profound. But we do see a lot of people experimenting with it. We do see patterns. And we do see the ability to kind of optimize and learn. I don't think anyone can... <laughs> I, I, I think everyone, if they had the choice, would rather be able to leverage insights and go forward with what works or doesn't work. And if they had the traffic and it wasn't hard to launch the experiments, they'd want to do those experiments themselves. And so just the need to be judicious with that traffic. You have fewer chips in front of you to keep <laughs> the casino going, right? You have a certain... That sounds like me at a casino. Yeah, you have fewer chips in front of you. And so you have to be even more judicious on when the, when you've got a hot deck. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I guess also one of the things kind of going back to that experimenting with people as well is trying to do what you can to, you know, whether or not this is exactly the same, but maybe recruit people to take part in kind of a hybrid of experimentation and more research-based stuff. So you can maybe get people to do some task-based stuff with your kind of get them to come in and, and try to do things within your app and just try and use whatever data, you know, going back to that squeezing the lemon thing again, right? Mm-hmm. Just try and get whatever you can out of them in some way. Like not everything has to be a statistically significant, whatever confidence interval based on hundreds of millions of users, right? There's still something you can do most of the time, I guess, is the take out there. I could not agree with you more. It is profoundly important in that scenario. And it's important to remember that you're just triangulating your way into a truth. And there's no one magic bullet. Surveys are great, but they have a limitation. Usability studies, great, they have a limitation. Split testing, great, they have a limitation. Guess what? Everything has a limitation. Damn it. <laughs> you put enough of them together there, they start to blur each other out. And the, the kind of the peaks make up for each other's valleys. And you can basically start to hone in on a truth. If you need to be 99% right, I really hope you're putting a medicine in somebody's body or you're trying to put a human being on the moon. <laughs> because if you're trying to like have that standard of, of and have no error whatsoever at that level, you're really there better be some really significant consequences. Because the, the, the flip side of it is the speed with which you move is going to be glacial, which is why it takes however many years it takes to get a medicine approved. And that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> but don't get the anti-vax people started. Uh, yeah, exactly. I should be careful with my analogies here, but it does take a <laughs> while to get, you know, to get to get everything designed to put a human being up in space. That's a good thing. It's a very high consequence if you have billions of people visiting a certain page and you want to change everything for everyone, well that's a pretty big significant change. It will have a huge impact. So maybe you can run a little small-scale experiment to gather data beforehand and you want to be very precise about it. That makes a lot of sense. You have 
15 people visiting your website or you have a smaller number of people coming through and you want to try and drive as much results as you can in as short a period of time as possible, you're going to have to give on that precision. And in return, you're going to get the ability to like run more things and try more things, which is going to be, again, that flip side of win rate times the number of things you try is your outcome at the end of the day. And that's what you need to optimize for. Well, there you go. There's hope for us B2B people. Yep. Well, plenty of food for thought there and hopefully something that could inspire people to maybe at least think about doing some split testing. Maybe even look at your platform and check them out as well. But after this, if they do want to reach out to you to chat about Do What Works or find out more about split testing in general or maybe see if they can tap you up for any Chicago Cubs memorabilia, <laughs> where can they find you? So uh, my website is dowhatworks.io. The place where I tend to hang out online is LinkedIn. I find it's kind of the, the kindest uh, and the most productive and, and <laughs> these days positive environment these days. So I really I enjoy the positivity there. Uh, but you can just find me at, uh, you know, just do Google search for, or not Google search, a LinkedIn search for Andre Sluisman. Well, I'll make sure to link it all into the show notes anyway, and hopefully you'll get a statistically significant number of people <laughs> heading in your direction. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> well, that's been a fantastic chat. So Obviously, really glad you could spend some time talking about some really interesting topics around experimentation and testing. Uh, hopefully, we can stay in touch. But yeah, as for now, thanks for taking the time. It was my pleasure. Great, great conversation. As always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did, again, I can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com, check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favorite podcast app and make sure you share with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night.